Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. Uh, we welcome those of you who are coming to our service a little later today as we continue to move forward um, in our sermon series, The Story, where we explore the grand narrative that, has, that God has been planning uh, from the beginning of the universe, literally, uh, to its very end. And last week, we covered that Israel was just about to enter into the promised land uh, where they were encouraged to follow God's law for their own personal relationship with Yahweh, but also for the purpose of being a blessing to all nations, right? And as we move forward, we see that there's all this anticipation, there's all this hope building up as they're about to see all of Abraham's promises being fulfilled before their very eyes as they begin to take their first step into this promised land. And indeed, all things originally were good. Uh, Joshua, he led, the vic- uh, he led the Israelite armies to many victories. And by the end of the book of Joshua, for all intents and purposes, Israel has finally settled down. They have finally settled down into the promised land. Yet, not everything is as it should be. The world, unfortunately, was still riddled with sin. Uh, The balance between obedience and rebellion was always on a razor's edge, and it always seemed to tip ever so slightly towards disobedience. And unfortunately, not just for the Israelites, but this seems to be a common theme in our lives as well, right? Um, Back in my old church, Uh, We used to have short-term mission teams, kind of like YouthWorks. They would come to our church, and their entire focus was dedicated on our church and our community and doing VBS ministries and and all that good stuff. And one of my favorite questions that I would like to ask the kids during our midweek meeting is this. I would ask them, you know, these are, you know, a lot of them are from, like, Midwestern, you know, suburban areas. And so I would ask them, so what do you guys think of New York? And almost always, they would answer, I didn't imagine it to be like this. You guys don't know, my old church is literally seven blocks down on 52nd Street and 8th Avenue. And so if you, if you guys know me, you know, I love 8th Avenue. I consider 8th Avenue as, as my second home. But the thing is, honestly, 8th Avenue, it does have its not-so-pleasant quirks, right? Uh, unfortunately, the stench of the fish markets in the summer um, or the innumerable rats that run around the street at night. You, you know, you just can't miss them. They're terrifying. Um, you also can't forget about the quadruple parked trucks holding up traffic for about half an hour. Um, and although, you know, I've never heard any of the youths say this explicitly, I'm sure none of them ever expected to see and to live next to so many Chinese people, right? You step in here and it's literally like you're in a different world. You're in a different country. And it's always a little amusing for me when they tell me this rosy picture of New York that they had in mind. Um, They always think of Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue in the city with all their glamorous stores and millionaire buildings. Or they would think of all the neon lights and gigantic displays in Times Square. They would almost always paint this beautiful image of New York that's painted in their minds by movies and films and shows. They carry around this idealized fantasy of being in the Big Apple and all the wonders and all the excitements that await them. By the time that they get here to 8th Avenue as they park their cars, you know, you can see it like literally on their face, their illusions just like drop as they come face to face with a reality that just simply does not match their expectations. And unfortunately, what you hear a lot in their voices and in their motives is that their desire is no longer to do kingdom work. 
Their desire is to live in this fantasy conjured up by movies and shows. So coming back to scripture for a moment, as these nomadic Israelites finally enter into the promised land for the first time and they begin to settle down into an agricultural life, which is actually fairly new for them, unfortunately for these Israelites, they too carry with them false expectations and ridiculous fantasies of what the Israelite kingdom should look like from a human perspective. And so rather than focusing on God's mission or on God's vision, they attempt to paint their own mission and their own vision aside from God. And today we're going to take a look at how that happens in one of our passages today from 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 8. So hear the word of the Lord here today. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second son was Obijah, and they both served at Beersheba. But the son did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said this, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now, the passage we read is, is kind of like a sort of like a crossroads or a critical point in Israelite history, because this moment marked a tremendous change, not just for Israelite history, but also for the entire world. As the Israelites ask for a king, it also has consequences for the rest of the world, as well as to what it means to be a blessing to all nations. So before we, we kind of jump the gun, let's, let's just talk about briefly, let's just talk about what Israel once was. So during the book of Joshua, Israel was held together not by national identity. It wasn't held together by, a, you know, a central king or a central government. Rather, the glue that held all 12 tribes together was their shared faith in Yahweh, right? They've witnessed, they've experienced miracle after miracle. They've seen God literally stop the sun in the sky. They have seen God split a river into dry ground again, this time the Jordan River. And they have seen Yahweh fight on their behalf and secure their victory against stronger nations and fortified cities. No matter what circumstances, no matter what obstacles they came, they came up to, God always delivered. God always brought them victory. And so wherever God led them, they followed. And in the presence of God, they always found that they were safe. And even by the time that the Israelites finally settled down from being nomads into farmers, God actually never stopped moving. Throughout the calendar year, through the Ark of the Covenant, God would wander from tribe to tribe to visit all of them. See, normally in, in most religions or in any religion, we always think of it as humans going to God, right? Whether it's going to a temple or going to a church or, or to some sort of sacred space, it's always the humans who move towards God. But God showed humanity the exact opposite. Wherever the Israelites were, God would travel to meet them where they were. 
God, again, displayed himself as a missionary God. He does not sit still to wait for the Israelites to come to him in order to bless them. Rather, God goes out throughout the year, throughout Jerusalem, not, sorry, not throughout Jerusalem, throughout Israel to bless the entire nation as he journeys from tribe to tribe, bringing his blessings, bringing his grace wherever he goes. And even as you read through the book of Judges, that documented Israelite history before they had a king, you see a tremendous image of God's grace and protection for the Israelites. And many of those stories, if you read them, Israel actually did not have a formal army to protect their borders. And so whenever foreign nations, stronger nations, gathered their own armies to try to take over the land of Israel, it was Yahweh who fought their battles for them. They didn't even need an army to fight their battles because Yahweh, their king, was their warrior. It was Yahweh who protected them against all odds, and it was Yahweh who displayed his faithfulness to Israel even when they began to slip and worship other gods. And so in the book of Joshua and parts of Judges, you see a glimpse of what God's kingdom should be like, the idealized kingdom, a nation where all people are united together in their faith in Yahweh, a nation where God delightfully walks in the midst of his people as they farm, as they build, as they raise children, make art, sing, and dance. It's a nation where God brings his blessings wherever he goes and protects his people wherever they are from anything that might threaten God's holy nation. And so there's this idea, there's this sense of an infectious holiness that wherever God went, his holiness would simply spread throughout the city and into the lives of the people who live in it. And to be honest, I think that's an absolutely lovely picture of what God's kingdom should look like, right? That was certainly the ideal. However, unfortunately, just as Adam and Eve forsook what was genuinely good for them, the Israelites followed suit as well. Rather than following God's model of being infectiously holy, of bringing holiness to the surrounding nations, it's actually the reverse that happened. It was the nation of Israel who was instead infected by the practices of other nations. Rather than being a blessing to all nations by influencing other people's cultures around them, it was the Israelites who instead were influenced by the surrounding nations. And so as you read through Judges and Samuel, you see that the people began to distance themselves from Yahweh more and more. Their first step of distancing was when the Israelites worshipped other gods. And in today's world, we, we would think that's kind of bizarre, right? In today's world, we kind of stick to our own tribes, right? But there's, there's not a lot of intermingling between faith. However, in the ancient Near East, everyone, except for the Israelites, they were polytheistic. They believed that there was a specific God for every domain in life or creation, right? There's a God for the sun, there's a God for a moon, there's a God of death, there's a God of life, there's a God for peacetime and harvest, and there's a God for war. And so as Yahweh was defending the Israelites and fighting on their behalf over and over and over again, the Israelites began to think that Yahweh was only the God of war who protected them in their promised land. They forgot that Yahweh was the Lord of all creation the king of kings, the lord of lords. And so what did they do? They started to worship other gods. They split up or they compartmentalized parts of their lives and decided when they should worship Yahweh and when they should worship a false god, Baal. 
And so when it was time to plant or when it was time to harvest, they would worship gods and goddesses of fertility. But when it was time for war, and you see this again and again in scripture, when it's time for war, what happens? Everyone puts on sackcloth and ashes and they start to worship Yahweh again. And it's unfortunate that you see the cycle happen over and over and over again in scripture. And although this sounds rather bizarre of compartmentalizing our lives and worshiping different gods, it's actually something we still do today. Sometimes who we are at church is not who we are at home or at work. We partition, we carve out parts of our lives for God and we leave the rest of it for our secular life. There are certain parts and areas of our life that we refuse to let God come into. There are certain times and places where we are indeed the salt and the light of the earth. But there are other times where we lose our saltiness intentionally. And so despite living thousands of years ahead of the Israelites, it's kind of scary to see that nothing has changed. And so that's the first level of distancing ourselves from Yahweh. That's when we compartmentalize God or compartmentalize our lives so that God only shows up in certain areas and not the others. It's where we kind of hide ourselves or parts of ourselves, just as Adam and Eve hid from God. However, the second level of distancing is outright rejection. And the way that the Israelites rejected God is in the passage that we actually read earlier, where they asked the prophet Samuel for a king. And honestly, this, this seems rather harmless at first, right? If you think about it, right? What nation doesn't have a king? Wouldn't it make sense to have a king so that you can raise an army, create laws for the nation, and have a king to lead us during wartime? But the fact of the matter is that Yahweh actually fulfilled all those roles for the nation of Israel. Israel did not need to raise up a united army because God fought literally all of their battles. God had also already given the Israelites the law for them to follow and to meditate on. And this law isn't based on greed. It's not based on wealth. It's not based on flawed human intellect, but it was a holy law given by an infinitely holy God, the perfect law. And as for a king to lead the people during wartime, God has done that too from the book of Exodus all the way to Samuel, and even further on as well. And so by asking for a human king, the people wanted to remove themselves from the reign and from the rule of Yahweh. At least in the past, they might have acknowledged Yahweh as the God who led them into military victory, but now they even reject that. They want to rule themselves, and they want to have a human king fight for them in their wars. They want to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, just like the very first temptation in the garden. And unfortunately, again, we see the same story, the same pattern play out even in our lives as all sorts of people remove themselves from the reign and rule of God so that they can decide for themselves what is good. And unfortunately, more often than not, we see that the result of this is that the world actually doesn't get much better. Our lives don't actually improve when we do this. On a, on a macro level, on a big picture level, we see predatory practices from businesses and institutions that are driven by greed at the expense of their workers who are just trying to make an honest living. And on a micro level, we see people picking and choosing what they think is good for themselves. But if they're honest, at the end of the day, they're always left with this nagging feeling of hollowness that something is simply just missing or incomplete. And in both cases, rather than returning back to God, 
it seems that these people would rather double down on their rejection of him. And so how does Yahweh, this warrior king, how does he deal with disobedience with his own people? The Israelites have rejected their own God as king, the same God who has brought them joy and peace, the same God who fought for them even during their rebellion. So how does God respond to their unfaithfulness? And God responds with what I would like to call as transformational faithfulness. God remains faithful to his people, but God is about to transform the Israelites' lack of faithfulness into something that will still lead them to be a blessing to all nations. And God does this in two ways. And the first way is that God redefines what it means to be a king. In certain ancient Near Eastern cultures, actually in most cultures, to be a king pretty much meant you were, you were a god amongst men, right? You see this in Egyptian culture and Babylonian culture. And the thing is, if you wield the power to influence an entire group of people without anyone or anything holding you back, then you pretty much were a, you know, a god amongst men. If you wanted to tax the people into poverty, no one's holding you back, right? If you want to subjugate a people into slavery, no one would tell you otherwise. And so in this type of society, the king was above the law because the king is the law and all people in such a society were to serve this king in all of his desires, good or bad. However, in Israel, Yahweh's vision of kingship is entirely different. The king is not above the law because the king is supposed to realize that he's actually under a greater law. The king is under, of course, God's law. And although the king had tremendous power, the king must also realize that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who he must be held accountable to for all of his actions. And whereas in other ancient Near Eastern societies where all people served the king, in Yahweh's vision, it is the king who is the servant of all people. The king is to uphold justice in the nation. The king is supposed to defend the cause of the orphan and of the widows, those who are the lowest in society. So can you imagine for a moment, a society where those who are at the bottom rung of society can feel safe knowing that they will be protected by their king and given what they need in order to survive, that they can actually depend on this person. What a tremendous society, what a tremendous nation that would be. And that is the type of king that God desires where even the ruler of the nation is actually the servant of all. But God does so much more than just transform the social and political norms of his time. It is through the, this request of a king that God transforms the Israelites' disobedience to bring the greatest blessing the world has ever seen. If the Israelites truly wished for a human king to rule them, then I, Yahweh, I will send my own son in the flesh to rule in their midst. And as Christ came into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God, we actually see the same image that we saw earlier of the ideal Old Testament God. Just as Yahweh in the Old Testament wandered throughout Israel to bring blessing to all people, Christ also wandered throughout Israel to bring the message of God's kingdom and the blessings of eternal salvation to all who had ears to hear. We see the same missionary God from the Old Testament who went to the people where they were. And wherever Christ went, 
his infectious holiness spread throughout the land. People who were terminally ill were healed. Those who were demon-possessed were now set free, and even those who are dead are now given new life. And so we see that God even uses the disobedience of the Israelites to create something that is holy, something that is good. God uses their disobedience and transforms it into something beyond their wildest imaginations. And for us as Christians, I believe that that gives us hope for ourselves as well. If we're honest, we, we certainly have not lived the holiest of lives, or if we're also honest, we've also been quite unfaithful to God. But I deeply believe that God will use even our deepest of faults to bring incredible transformation to our lives and to the lives of those around us. If we return back to him in faithfulness. Now, does this mean that, you know, we can justify our sins, we can justify our wrongdoings and, or possibly even sin even more so that God's grace abounds? You know, of, of course not. But what the transformational faithfulness of God shows us is that there's always a new start. There's always a fresh start each and every day for us as we continually turn back to God with a faithful heart. And so as we're about to enter into a period of prayer, I encourage us to confess. Let us confess our wrongdoings to God. Let us confess how we have distanced ourselves from God. And as you receive his forgiveness today, as you're brought into his presence, pray for wisdom and how God can use you to be a blessing to all nations with all your faults and with all of your imperfections and how he can transform you to be a blessing to all. So why don't we come together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we confess that you know, every day we, we distance ourselves from you. We confess our hearts once to decide for itself what is good and what is evil. Maybe we do this out of convenience because taking the high road just, just takes too much mental and emotional energy. Maybe we do this out of pride or greed. But Lord, no matter the circumstance, we know that you are still faithful to us, just as you were faithful to the Israelites, even in their disobedience, generation after generation. And so Lord, we pray that you'll continue to transform us into Christ-likeness. We pray that you'll continue to transform our faults into something that we can use to bless others. Teach us, Father, and give us the wisdom to discern your will. We acknowledge you as our King. And so as our King, Direct us and lead us. Let your will become ours. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.